BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodInToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News podcast family. This week's show is brought to you by Spider-Man No Way Home, a film that just destroyed every claim that the pandemic is keeping audiences stuck to their couches at home. You know, I'm a sucker for a good sports drama, and American Underdog out Christmas Day isn't just good, it's excellent. I talked to the film's co-director, Andy Oren, about the film, based on the amazing life of Kurt Warner, later in the show. Now, of course, the big movie news this week is just how much money Spider-Man No Way Home made over the weekend. Ever since I got bit by that spider, I've only had one week where my life has felt normal. That was when you found out. that spell where you wanted everyone to forget the Peter Parker Spider-Man. We started getting some visitors. Yes, that movie made $260 million during its first few days of release. That's stunning, with or without a pandemic. But of course, we do have a pandemic, and much of the country is in lockdown and during mask mandates, or a combination of the two, plus the media is doing all it can to scare us into oblivion. So how did Spidey prevail through all of that? I think there's a few reasons why. I mean, we're talking about a brand that's very well known for starters. Tom Holland, Mr. Peter Parker himself, he's a great choice to play the wall crawler. No questions asked. Just a good actor, perfect casting once again for Marvel. Now the trailers tease the return of Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin and Alfred Molina as, as Doc Ock. Two great actors, two excellent villains. Who wouldn't want to see them again? And of course, those trailers also tease something else, that we might see some other familiar faces returning to the franchise. No spoilers here. Go in and see for yourself. 
Now, you also think audiences are smart. They sensed something else about the tone of the film. The focus is going to be on fun, on nostalgia for sure, and pure entertainment, period. I'll spoil one thing about the movie. It's not woke. All right, I'll spoil two things. It's an absolute love letter to the fans, to the audience, especially those who've been watching this story all the way back since 2002. I think all of that put together made the difference. The shame, though, is that while fan-friendly films like Spider-Man No Way Home and also the most recent film, Ghostbusters Afterlife, showed Hollywood what we want to see. We don't want to see the woke. We want to see entertainment. We don't mind some fan service if it's embedded in a really good story. Now, will Hollywood listen? I don't think they will, not yet at least. I expect many more films that echo what we've seen in Eternals and less like we've seen in No Way Home. I think that's the future, at least in 2022 and beyond. Man, I hope I'm wrong about that, but I don't think I am. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Toto's take of the week is Eye in the Sky. This 2015 thriller stars Alan Rickman in his last on-screen role. But that's not the only reason to see it. Rickman co-stars with Helen Mirren. and they're playing military generals who are plotting a drone strike against some Islamic militants. They've got them right in their sights, but it's not as easy as just pushing a button and seeing the missiles fly. The film really does an expert job of kind of capturing all the nuances of drone strikes, the the questioning of it, the political ramifications, the moral ramifications. Now, I think a story like this seems like it'd be very politically minded, very heavy-handed, but it's not. It really does focus on the complexities of war, of drone warfare specifically, and of the people who are pushing those buttons. Now, this movie didn't get a lot of attention when it came out initially. I don't think it got much, if any, Oscar love or even awards season interest, but it's an excellent film, and it's one of the smarter movies in recent years about the way we fight wars today. Now, as luck would have it, Netflix just added Eye in the Sky to its streaming roster. All the reason you need to check it out. Before we get to my chat with Andy Irwin, I wanted to read a nasty review of his film, American Underdog. Now, it doesn't really seem appropriate that he's a guest. I shouldn't greet his film with a negative review, but it really isn't a negative review about his film. It's really a negative review of Irwin's faith and of the faith of the people who were involved in this particular production. Now, I have to say, when I read this review, I was pretty shocked, but then I thought, you know, that's why I do what I do. I'm an openly right-of-center conservative critic, and I think we could use a few more people like me and maybe a few less people like this particular critic. Now, the source is IndieWire. Now, that's a website that is certainly left-of-center, sometimes aggressively so, but you wouldn't really know that on the surface. It doesn't sort of announce that. It just is what it is. And if you doubted that for a moment, consider a few portions of the review from, this, from that particular site of American Underdog. 
It starts with this unnecessary and kind of snarky subhead. The Christian duo behind I Still Believe returned with the incredible true story of a large and handsome man who was good at football. Whew, well, it actually gets worse. Here's more. Like so many of the faith-based biopics that have helped turn the genre into a flyover state phenomenon, American Underdog is sustained by a vaguely fetishistic enthusiasm for its subject's hardships. In this case, poverty, tornadoes, and a wife whose devotion to Jesus Christ is only surpassed by her devotion to bad wigs. This particular reviewer also calls veteran actor Adam Baldwin, who's got a supporting role in the film, a right-wing asshat. And I apologize for my language there, but I did want to capture what they're saying about the film and the also the, some of the characters in the film. And then, of course, later on, you get more swipes at the people who might be interested in a film like this. Again, this is a movie review, presumably meant for all audiences, anyone who's curious about the movie and wants to know if it's good, bad, or indifferent. Here's more of that review. Is American Underdog a good movie? Traditional metrics of quality hardly seem relevant when it comes to a biopic that's less interested in satisfying any narrative conflict than it is in paying off its protagonist's spiritual investment. Now, in case you didn't get it, this reviewer is clearly hostile to Christian storytellers. Now, imagine if the same critic trashed a Jewish filmmaker, a Muslim director, in similar ways. Unacceptable, right? So why is it cool here? Why didn't someone at IndieWire say, hey, wait a minute, could you be less nasty and more empathetic to people who maybe don't have the same worldview you do? You know, my website is Hollywood in Toto, and I, I let my conservative readers know what my views are. And my conservative views flavor my reviews, for sure. No apologies. But I would never write a review like that. I'm never that cruel, that's for sure. I wouldn't call any progressive actor, no matter how much I disagreed with him or her, a left-wing asset. That's unprofessional and unfair. Shame on Undiewire for doing just that in that review. Oh, and a quick side note. At the time of this recording, American Underdog, the film in question, has a 92% fresh rating at Rotten Tomatoes. Huh. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, now that we've got that nastiness out of the way, let's get to this week's guest. Andy Irwin has been making movies with his brother, John, for a while now. And every time I hear that, I think, oh my gosh, if I made movies with my brother, we would kill each other. But obviously, Andy and, er and John have a pretty good relationship. They're making movies, doing their own thing, and they're surviving and even thriving for sure. Some of their movies in the past have included October Baby, Woodlawn, and I Can Only Imagine, which was a huge hit. Now, they're Christians, and openly so. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. They're also part of a larger faith-based film community, and I've seen it, in my own eyes, as being a really maturing genre of late. It's a pretty remarkable trend, given how young it is, and I think that the Irwin brothers are really a big part of that. But I think what's going to surprise people the most about American Underdog, which is out Christmas Day, is that it subtly reflects Kurt Warner's faith, but it doesn't really kind of go overboard with it, and it also shows in a very kind of quiet and gentle way how that faith shaped his life on and off the field. It's a beautiful way to kind of share that element of a story, and you can't tell Kurt Warner's saga without it. 
Now, again, Andy, like his brother, are on the front lines of the faith-based film movement, and I suspect that American Underdog could be his biggest hit to date. Here's my conversation with filmmaker Andy Irwin. Andy, this story sounds perfect for you and your brother on paper, but I know everything doesn't go as easily as you want with making movies, and there's always complications along the way. Can you maybe take us back to the beginning of this project? It, uh, were you immediately attracted? What were the obstacles? Just kind of set the stage. Yeah, I mean, Christian, the, 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 the genesis for the idea began 20 years ago. Uh, I was, uh, John and I, when we were first getting started as filmmakers, uh, I worked at ESPN as a, as a cameraman. And so uh, I remember working the Super Bowl back in 2001 and just watching from the sidelines uh, at the end of that game and watching Kurt Warner. It was in his second Super Bowl. Uh, he was playing against Tom Brady. And by that point, his story had become legend. And I just remember watching him with this spiky-haired, you know, former Marine lady in the stands that was his wife, Brenda. And I just always said, I want to know the story behind that. <laughs> and so you would have never guessed that 20 years later, we'd be the ones to be telling that story. But Kurt and Brenda connected with us, and we sat down with them in Arizona and kind of asked them, what do you see your story as? And they said, it's not just about the football. It's about us fighting to stay together as a family and really about their, our relationship with our son, Zach, who has special needs and is blind. And I just looked at John and I said, I want to do that movie. Let's do it. <laughs> and so it kind of came together very quickly. And then, you know, next thing you know, uh, COVID hit since we had to get very creative on how to film it in the midst of a pandemic. But all that struggle and everything kind of showed up on the screen and I think made a better movie uh, because we really could kind of relate to, I think we've all felt like an underdog the past two years uh, in, in this world. And uh, I think it's very easy to tap into that feeling. So I think we could kind of relate to a little bit of that struggle of this family trying to keep it together in the midst of a, a lot of challenges. So um, it, it, it was, uh, it was, it, you know, no movie wants to be made, <laughs> but this one in particular was a, was a struggle at points, but uh, I think it made a beautiful film. And, you know, I don't want to give too much of the film away, but what you're hinting at really took me by surprise at how much this story, your film, is not a football story. I mean, there's football in right. it for sure. There's some great scenes, but it truly is about this couple and their hardships. And uh, I talk a little bit about, I think sometimes when you, when you do a fact-based story, there are moments where you think, oh, that couldn't have happened, and it did. Right. You know, Kurt Warner couldn't be stocking shelves in a grocery store, but we know he did. Uh, were there right. other elements there that are in the film that, that even you were kind of surprised that were that actually happened that seemed kind of just either too far-fetched or, or yeah. just too, too low a low that, they, that this couple faced at the time? Yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty amazing. I, I was watching the other day on Good Morning America, and Zachary Levi, who plays Kurt in the movie, and the real Kurt Warner were on uh, with Robin Roberts and the rest of the team. And they said, uh, we wanted to show a clip from, you know, when Kurt had just finished his first Super Bowl, that was his first stop uh, on Good Morning America. And so 20 years prior, they showed this clip from them and, and Charlie, the host, was talking to Kurt. And he said, you know, if, if a movie producer came and said they wanted to make this movie, uh, the studios would reject it that they said that this could never have happened. <laughs> That's right. And uh, and they laughed and they said, okay, and then they came back and they were like, you know, you know, now we're making a movie of it. Um, you know, I think the thing about this story, typically you do have to kind of invent set pieces to be able to have the story structure you need within a true story. It's why, 
you know, Aaron Sorkin says that, you know, doing a, a, a true story is not doing a photograph, it's doing a portrait. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but in this case, we didn't have to do that at all. Uh, it really became about compression and about losing things in order to fit it into a two hour window and having to kind of condense history uh, more than create it. And so uh, as we got into it, the, the biggest set piece that really did happen was the tornado. And I won't give a lot of way, mm -hmm. way of exactly what happened, but that, that, is, that is exactly the way we portray that the film is exactly what brought them back together as a couple. And uh, uh, it was a, a heart-wrenching moment that was kind of a low that really kind of created this desire for Kurt to say, okay, what's worth fighting for? And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's where he kind of really discovered the inner strength that uh, Brenda had. And, um, and that really happened. Now, Kurt Warner is part of the production team here, and obviously that's an amazing resource. You can call upon him. He can help shape it, make sure it's as accurate as possible. But imagine as a storyteller, you're thinking, oh, gosh, you know, if I want to show some of his flaws, if I want to show some warts of this story, it's a little harder when, when the guy who, who lived it yeah. is right behind you. Talk about that tension, and was he, I mean, it, it, you know, he's not, He's not idealized in this film at all, and I think I think that's to his credit. But just as a storyteller, how did you kind of work out that balance with him? Yeah, it was it was definitely kind of a trust fall for both of us uh, between him and Brenda, um, and me and my brother. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the the one thing that was a gift for us is when we first started, is Kurt was adamant that I don't want to be a Pollyanna Christian. You know, I don't want to be portrayed as this person that has all their stuff together and you know, good guy gets a little bit better life. Uh, I want to, he said, I want to show kind of the struggle and the hardships and, and the imperfections and the flaws. And so they were very open to that part of the process, but also everything in your life is very precious and you have to, I mean, there's a reason why as a filmmaker, I can't uh, edit my own trailers for my movies because uh, all two hours are special to me. <laughs> That's, right. That's uh, right. And, 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 and you have to have somebody that objectively comes and says, we need to make this into a, a, a two, two minute highlight reel. Um, so, you know, you have to have some objectivity. So I, you know, I, we, we made a commitment. We said to Kurt and Brenda, we're going to honor your real life story. And we're going to make sure this is an accurate reflection of what you went through. And we want that to be as authentic as possible and allow you guys to have a voice into shaping that. But our second commitment is we will under no circumstances, uh, allow any of us to make a bad movie. Mm -hmm. And so that's the tension. So we, you, we have to have the freedom we need to to make a really good movie, and you have the freedom to speak into the honesty of your experience. But the, the tension is in that healthy friction with respect in the middle. And there were times where that was tough, but they played ball every single time and, you know, had some great ideas. And sometimes we, we compromised their direction. Sometimes they compromised ours. But I think we found a really good blend of both of those that I think is, is a really authentic uh, a representation of what they went through. You're lucky to have Dennis Quaid on the production, and I think this is your second time working with him. He just seems as busy as possible these days. Every third movie, he's, he's got uh, Dennis Quaid in it. Talk about working with him behind the scenes, what he brings to a production. I, you know, I spoke to him recently, and he talked about how he's not just picking any film these days. He really is being selective and really kind of picking projects that are uplifting, that have a, a, a purpose, a meaning. So with all this sort of you know, dovetails perfectly into this particular film, but just share right. some insights into Dennis Quaid behind the scenes. You know, Dennis, Dennis has kind of become, I guess, uh, for the Irwin brothers, what I guess Michael Caine is for uh, Christopher Nolan. It's, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, there's this uh, 
trust and, and, and seasoned quality that he brings to where he's at in life. And, you know, I, I you know, my, my favorite actors are the ones that have been in the saddle for a little while and they've really kind of come to this place of uh, self-acceptance and kind of self-awareness to where they've kind of embraced the, the years. And, um, and Dennis, I think for him, he talks about that I can only imagine uh, the film that we did, we did with him first um, really unlocked something for him where he really embraced that uh, uh, he could he could kind of embrace the texture of his years mm-hmm. and do a rough character that, that kind of finds redemption. And so, you know, when, when we got to this one, uh, I reached out to Dennis and I said, listen, uh, you know, we'll let you play whatever role you want to in this outside of Kurt Warner. <laughs> and uh, and but I, I sent him a highlight reel of Dick Vermeil and I just said, I think it's really special when an icon plays an icon. And uh, he watched all the press conferences and everything with the real Dick Vermeil. And Dick Vermeil was very much like Dennis Quaid, wears his heart on his sleeve, very gregarious, kind of uh, has a growly voice, uh, but has this gravitas to him. And Dennis texted back, he's like, I want him, I want to play Vermeil. <laughs> and so it was a really cool experience. I think what he brings to me as a filmmaker is we have a trust for each other where I, I don't feel you know, I don't, I, there's, a, there's kind of a, an ease and a shorthand that we already made a movie together that we're really proud of. And so for this one, I just gave him room to kind of discover the character. I connected him and the real coach for meal and they hit it off. And then I think he really brings him to life in a really special way. One of the, one of the funniest jokes that happened was, you know, early on, uh, one of our uh, producers on the film, Mark Chiardi, did a, a movie called Invincible uh, with uh, Mark Wahlberg mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, Greg Kinnear plays a young Dick Vermeil in that one, <laughs> and and so Greg and Dennis Quaid are really close friends, and so Dennis shows up on his first day and he said, "I'm only here to do my best impression of Greg Kinnear doing Dick Vermeil," <laughs> and so uh, we laughed about that one a good bit, but we had a, we had a good time. I talked about how I was surprised at the the focus here is not so much on the football but on the love story, on the connection, the family you know, finding yourself and finding your true purpose. I'm also, I, I, I thought that, you know, Kurt Warner is a Christian. He's been open about his faith. You as a filmmaker are, are a similar position. And yet I think that it's not as faith-driven as mm-hmm. I expected. Uh, talk about that as a creative choice. I thought that was interesting. I mean, I, I felt this was a family-driven story with certainly yeah. elements of faith in there. But uh, just tell me your perspective. Yeah, you know, for us... Um, you know, we're, 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 we're storytellers that love true stories. And so I think one of the things that takes the burden off of us is we don't kind of go into it from a standpoint of, of having an agenda. We're just there um, as Christians, and we are attracted to stories of redemption of faith. We're there to tell the true story as it wants to be told. And you kind of have to get your finger on the pulse of what is this story. And as we got into it and talked to Kurt and Brenda and asked them what they saw their story with, what it was, they really pointed to the fact that they felt like it was about, you know, really centering around their relationship with their son, Zach. And it was really about the spirit of an underdog, not just in Kurt, but in the whole family. And so we, it really allowed us to say, okay, this is a really broad story that plays um, in a, in a mainstream way that allows us to, that the faith is just an element of who they are as characters. Uh, But it, it was much more of a broad, look at their lives from a standpoint that's very relatable as an underdog. And so uh, it, it was what the movie wanted to be, was a really good sports drama that had a great love story. 
and uh, we didn't shy away from the Christianity and and really embraced that texture. And you know, our cast really leaned into that as well, especially Anna Pack when she did her homework. But uh, but you know, on this one, we felt like it it played into something a lot broader than we'd ever done before, and it was actually a burden lifted because it was just it was just naturally what the story wanted to be. And, uh, and we kind of discovered it as we went. And I think it found something that was a, a beautiful blend that was something new for us. I think I've watched uh, the work that you've done over the years, and it's, it's grown and blossomed in a way. I, I think the other Christian filmmakers are in a similar position. I feel like the, the, the space has really matured and, and diversified and, and grown in, in a very short time. I just that's just yeah. me as an observer. What, what, what I mean, you know, the chosen has found great success. Uh, yeah. You and your brother have just kind of knocked it out of the park a few more times. What, what talk about uh, this sort of arena of storytelling? It it feels like it's it, obviously there's a richness there, but in the beginning there maybe there was sort of sort of some growing pains. Where do you see the yeah. space, or is it even fair to call it a space? I mean, maybe that's maybe that's yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely it's definitely an audience. Uh, it's an underserved audience, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a heartland uh, faith audience that we, we can probably embrace, but we think it's also very broad. Um, you know, uh, I, th- I think in the early days, for those of us that were uh, people of faith and that were Christians kind of jumping into this space, uh, we had a lot of ground to make up. You know, I think, you know, the faith was very normalized um, in the early days of Hollywood, especially with uh, the influence of the Catholic Church uh, uh, throughout uh, a, a big portion of cinema. <clears throat> and it, it resulted in, you know, some of the, the, the most beautiful films of all time, whether it's Ben-Hur or The Robe or, you know, so many other films. Um, and then I loved like kind of old school, kind of Frank Capra, that spirit of optimism. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, the, the Christians kind of abdicated the arts in, the, in a large portion of time. And so when it kind of came back around after the Passion of the Christ and there was a desire to re-engage, you know, I think uh, we had a lot of ground to to make up. And so I look at those early attempts and I don't see uh, flawed. I I see uh, uh, kind of bold trailblazers stepping into an arena that they had to learn on the fly. And we kind of were maybe on the second generation of that. And there are, uh, you know, others that have come along with us. And I think we've each kind of, you know, kind of learned from each other's trial and error mistakes. But I think it's been exciting, like you said, in a rapid amount of time. I think it's turning into really quality art that's kind of broadly accepted within the industry. Uh, there's no longer that stigma or being a redheaded stepchild. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, and I, I think we're really grateful for a studio like Lionsgate that has really put the the value into the brand uh, as a, a legitimate brand as much as any other audience. Um and I think we've been finding our voice along with a lot of other quality filmmakers, whether it's Devon Franklin or, you know, like you said, Dallas Jenkins with The Chosen. I mean, I was looking the other night at the, the numbers that their one night Christmas event did. And it's just insane. Staggering. The audience they've cultivated. And so Dallas, huge fan of his, you know, and then, you know, my hope is that there's other filmmakers coming behind us that will take it to another level as uh, beyond anything we've done. So I, I think, you know, we have a policy. John and I do that um, quality is something you always chase. It's never, never something you actually catch. <laughs> and um, it, you just try to get uh, better with each, uh, each time uh, at the plate. And, um, uh, and I think for us, American underdog was a chance to kind of take it a step further. And we had a studio that really um, 
that really supported that both financially and in terms of the opportunity. And, uh, and we're just tremendously blessed to not apologize for our Christianity and just do stories that serve an audience we love. Well, not to look too far ahead, but I'm always kind of curious about what you and your brother are up to next. Are there any projects you can share, maybe tease something you're kind of working on, or maybe even something you'd like to in the near future? Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're doing more and more with, um, you know, there's other filmmakers we're working with that we're producing their product. And so we've got three films that are ready to go. Uh, John's stepping back into the director's chair uh, on a solo project uh, after the first year, looking at the early uh, beginnings of the Jesus movement in the 70s as a narrative. It's a period of time he's always really loved and his body of work. Uh, so he's, he's working on a project that's a true story for that. And then I've got a, a one that I can't announce the title yet, but I'm like chomping at the bit. <laughs> but it's a it's a military story, uh, Navy SEAL story, true story based on a New York Times bestseller that we just uh, signed the deal for. And I've got a, a Oscar nominated writer that just signed on to write it that I'm so excited about. So uh, that one will be coming later next year. But you know, we just uh, keep uh, looking for stories of hope and redemption. And when it ignites something in our heart, we kind of jump in to say, let's tell this story and. Lionsgate just continues to say, let's, we need more product for this audience and the, the audience to have a movie like American Underdog that plays for that audience, embraces it, but then broadens that out on a Christmas Day release. That's exciting. Yeah, I, this the the uplift nature of the story is, uh, you know, we live through it, but to watch it again was really remarkable. The movie is American Underdog, hitting theaters on Christmas Day. Perfect timing, perfect choice. And if you want that inspirational story, if you're a little bit bogged down in life right now, this is exactly the movie for you. But I just have to warn you, bring a tissue. I'm not a crier at movies, but you, <laughs> the waterworks will commence. Trust me. Thank you, Andy, for joining the show, and uh, have a wonderful Christmas. Appreciate it, Christian. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Right on Hollywood. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you shared a five-star review over at iTunes. If you didn't, we're going to try harder next week. I promise. Have a safe, amazing Christmas, everyone, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.